Hi there, Malcolm here, and today we're talking about theology and ecology. How does God feel about the way that we're using the resources of this world? How should we approach the use of the resources that God has given us? And uh, what does the Bible say about it? We're going to look at that in particular at 2 Peter chapter uh, Second Peter chapter 3 today. The first, This is the first of two classes. Next time we'll talk about the humanitarian impact and God's mandate of stewardship to us from Genesis chapter 1. I did teach this class for the men of the Watford Church last week, but I've decided to re-record it for the women's meeting this week because I didn't like my recording from last week and there's some ways I'd like to express some things differently, perhaps even more clearly, and maybe even make it a little shorter. So that's my aim for today. So let's think a bit about how does God want us to treat this world? And part of the issue is, part of the way to think about that is, where is this world going? Where is it ending up? Only if we know where it's ending up, that'll help. At least if we know how it's going to end up, that'll give us a better idea of how we're meant to be treating it now. So we know that this creation started good, didn't it? Genesis chapter 1, verse 31 God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. Not just good, very good. The sixth day. And we know that things are going to end up good in terms of what God has created. Revelation 22, a great vision for the next life, the time when God and humankind are together. On either side of the river, chapter 22 of Revelation, verse 2, the tree of life bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit in every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. There will no longer be any curse. That's referring back to Genesis 2 and 3, the curse that happens because of the fall. So no longer any curse. So at the end of, at the end of all things, the, the world, the earth, it's going to be a place where there's going to be healing for the nations. No curse. God with his people. All beautiful and wonderful, just like it was in Eden. So the restoration of Eden is clearly God's vision. So what does that mean about how we treat what we have here on this earth? Now, much of Christian history, and I think perhaps for some of us, and I know for myself growing up, my thought was, at least to some degree, it doesn't matter that much how we treat the world here because we're all going to heaven. We're leaving this place and going to heaven. You've probably heard that old adage that uh, what is the Bible? It is B-I-B-L-E, basic instructions before leaving earth. Now, there's some poetic, metaphorical truth in that, but I would challenge that thought. It's not, the Bible isn't just about what how to prepare ourselves for leaving earth. It's preparing ourselves for the healing that God is bringing about partly in us in this life, but partly in his creation and all he has made ultimately. Talk more about that in a minute. So the idea that we don't doesn't matter what happens here because we're going to heaven, I would challenge that. Secondly, uh, another thought is uh, that's often the case in Christendom is, well, it doesn't matter what we do here because it's all going to burn. Anyway, it's all going to burn, so what does it matter? And I have preached and taught that myself, and I now think that's incorrect. Why do I think that? Well, let's have a look at 2 Peter chapter 3. That'll be our focus today. I will refer to some other scriptures, and I'll put the references in the uh, show notes. So you can look them up later if you like. But let's first of all take a look at 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 to 13. And let me read them for us. But the day of the Lord, key phrase, by the way, we'll come back to, the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything done in it will be laid bare. 
since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives as you look forward to the day of God, the day of God, that special day, and speed its coming. That day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with his promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. That's what we're looking forward to, a new heaven and a new earth. Now, the word new there is very important, but we'll come on to that in just a few moments. First of all, the language in this passage. Is this saying that literally there'll be a fire that will burn up the earth? Is it saying literally that this, uh, all of these things will happen in a literal way? I would, I would say not. Peter was very familiar with Jewish apocalyptic language, as it's called apocalyptic language. is language often used of the times when God comes in judgment. We see it in the Old Testament with the prophets in particular, and we see it in the New Testament in passages like this, as God is doing his best to describe something to you and I that is, uh, frankly, indescribable. It can't be described to us because we can't really grasp it, yet God uses uh, what we call apocalyptic language to help us with that. Think, think of the Psalms, for example. In Psalm 114, it, sells that, it says that the mountains skipped like rams. I don't know about you, I haven't seen a mountain skipping, skipping rope, mountains. I can't see it. No, I, don't, I haven't seen that. It's poetic language. And this is what we often see, and I think we're seeing here. So we're not to take this, I believe, literally. You need to be careful looking at uh, passages describing God's judgment and the bringing about of purification and bringing in something new. Let's not be uh, too tied to a literal interpretation. Second thing to talk about here is that phrase, the day of the Lord. Very significant phrase. The day of the Lord talks about the day of God and that day in verse 12. That's a trigger phrase for someone of a Jewish background. They would think instantly back to examples in the Old Testament of times when that phrase was used or that idea is is used. In other words, the day of the Lord, those are days when God comes in decisive action. He he acts decisively, ending something and starting something new. Genesis 3 is an example. The phrase isn't there, but the example is there. He he ends something that... uh, perfect situation with Adam and Eve is broken by their actions and then there's an end to that they have to leave Eden but then there's also the starting of something new there's judgment but there's grace because God makes clothing for them and uh, and protects them and gives them a a hope and a future and of course begins his plan of salvation Uh, or for example the flood the flood we have the flood as in judgment and then we have grace as in the landing of the ark on the mountain and God providing for Noah and his family and a new covenant and the rainbow. So we have this decisive action. We have judgment. We have grace. We have the end of something and the start of something new. Again, this is what is happening here in Second Peter chapter 3. What is ending and what is coming that is new, we'll talk about in a minute. If you want a really good passage with this um, revealing this kind of language really clearly, have a look at Isaiah chapter 13 around verses 6 to 13. Uh, where God comes, the day of the Lord is mentioned several times, saying that hearts will melt, faces will be aflame, uh, the stars of heaven and the constellations will not flash forth their light, the sun will be dark when it rises, the moon will not shed its light. Again, not necessarily literal, just saying this is going to be a scary day of God acting, acting in righteousness, 
and acting to bring about something that needs to change. There needs to be a change. Something significant is happening. So when we see that phrase in scripture, we think judgment, we think purification. We think that, uh, as in the passage in Isaiah 13, that God is going to put an end in that situation to the arrogance of the proud, is a phrase used there. It's going to stop something that's sinful so that there can be peace, so that there can be liberation, so that there can be hope. Something new and better is coming. And the vision of this is encapsulated, for example, in Isaiah 65. You might like to look there, verses 17 to 25. And that's a passage which has a great bearing on the Revelation passages about the new heavens and the new earth. It's also mentioned here in 2 Peter 3. Uh, in that passage, uh, the Isaiah writes, uh, Behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. Former things will not be remembered or come to mind. In other words, God's doing something, changing something. Be glad and rejoice forever in what I create, for I will create Jerusalem for rejoicing and her people for gladness. And you can hear the hoover in the background. That's, um, sorry about that, but we'll have to carry on. We haven't got time to do much editing today. Rejoicing about the fact there'll be no more weeping, no more crying. Uh, an infant will live unto an old age. The man who doesn't live to be a hundred will be thought to be accursed. People will build houses and live in them. They'll plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They will, uh, they will have the lifetime of a tree. My chosen ones will wear out the work of their hands, so they're going to have a fruitful life. Their labor won't be in vain. They won't bear children for calamity. They are the offspring of those blessed by the Lord. And God says it will come to pass that before they call, I will answer. While they're still speaking, I will hear. And the famous phrase you probably heard, the wolf and the lamb will graze together. The lion will eat straw like the ox. Dust will be the serpent's food. They will do no harm or evil in all my holy mountain. This is God's great vision. Now, he's talking there to Israel at that point. It's a vision for them of their future metaphorically. But like many prophecies of the Old Testament, there's an immediate or near future fulfillment in mind for God when his people repent and when God has brought about his judgment. But there's also that longer term vision of where this is all going. Because those prophecies are about where they're going, where things are going for them, that generation or so. But there's also that sense of where are we going post, post Eden? Where are we headed to ultimately? Because where we're headed to ultimately is what's expressed in Second Peter chapter three, as well as the book of Revelation. So what makes up the vision? And again, if you look again at chapter Isaiah 65, you'll see there's an end to sorrow. There's an end to pain. There's an end to premature death. Wonderful vision. There's prosperity. There is fulfillment. There is intimacy with God. And there is an ecological balance. All the things that we're seeing are the vision for, uh, for, the, for the future. It's a physical vision. Uh, there are no disembodied um, spirits strumming harps on clouds. That's not our destiny to s sit on a cloud um, playing the harp. Um, that's, not our, that's not the vision that God has for us. And it's an earthly vision. It's not about going to heaven, but about, as someone said about this passage, it's about the earthing of heaven into creation. Creation in this vision is healed, healed of human suffering and of conflict, any conflict between humans, but also between animals. God's kingly rule is reestablished. In other words, what it was in Eden is what it will be. And it's earthly. It's a vision of this earth in harmony with its creator and the, and the people and animals within it being in harmony. This is the vision. 
And so as we think about Second Peter chapter 3, what we're looking at here is uh, parallels with Noah's flood. And again, if you want to have a look at, in your own time at the verses that come before, verses 10 to 13, talks about the flood. And just as the waters of the flood cleansed the earth. So in this passage in, in chapters chapter 3, verses 10 to 13, when it talks about the fire coming, it's not to destroy everything, like um, to take it out of existence, but to purify it. The flood purified, the fire purifies. It says destroyed here in this passage, I know it. But what it's talking about is the earthliness or the the worldliness of the earth is going to be destroyed. The things that are not of God will be purified and taken away. And so we're only left with what's what can then be reinvigorated. And in a sense, interestingly, I think, in a sense, resurrected, given new life. That's the idea, I believe. This is a picture of selective judgment, not complete destruction. Just as the water of the flood cleansed the earth, so the refiner's fire of verse 7 here will purify the world from evil. It's not annihilating it. When it talks about destroying the elements, of course, in the first century, they weren't thinking about the periodic table, <laughs> unknown to them. We're talking there about the elemental forces of the universe, those who are opposed to God's rule, the distorted powers, which have thwarted God from en enabling what happened in Eden to be the uh, the normal experience of his people with him. Those will be destroyed. They will be, uh, they've been partly paralyzed by what Jesus did on the cross. That's, that's actually what uh, enables God's rule, but it's not fully realized yet, is it? But it will be when Jesus comes back. This is a vision of Jesus coming back and bringing his perfect rule to this earth. Uh, lastly, let's talk about the, the word new. The word new here and in Revelation uh, had to be thought about because in Greek there are two words for new new heaven and new earth talked about in Isaiah 65 and also in Revelation chapter 21 a new heaven and a new earth first heaven and the first earth earth have passed away no longer any sea representing chaos neos means brand new in the Greek kainos means new as to its form or quality and that's the word that's used consistently in the New Testament regarding the new creation. When it says new creation or new heaven, new earth, it's using the word kainos. It doesn't mean brand new. Brand new is a different word. It's not saying a brand new earth, a brand new heaven. It's saying a renewed, brought back to its newness, what it was once when it was new back in Genesis. That's what, what God is doing here. When he says, I'm bringing about a new heaven, a new earth, he's saying, I'm bringing it all back together. The way it was always meant to be, it's going to be fully and finally healed. That's what it's talking about. For example, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 uses the word when it says, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creature. Not brand new, but renewed. That's the same word there, kainos. The old things have passed away. Behold, new kainos things have come. When you and I were baptized into Christ, we didn't just dissolve into our um, atoms and disappear and some new person was there suddenly once we came out of the water. We were the same body. We were renewed in our spirit. So we were made new by the operation of the spirit, healing our spirits to be uh, united with God. In the same way, when, God bring, when Jesus comes back, when God brings about that newness of, of heaven and earth, it's not destroying what's here. It is giving it that new, renewed spirit, effectively, I would say healing might be the best word to describe it. We haven't got time to look at Romans 8, but you might like to look at that. Romans 8, 18 to 25, which talks about the uh, 
the creation uh, being liberated from decay. And it's the same idea there. That's what's going to be happening. The creation effectively is resurrected, just like we are promised a bodily resurrection. You remember Jesus' body? His resurrected body was not the same as before, but was, but was still a body. It has some different powers, but it was a body. And it ate, he ate food after his resurrection. We are going to have a body on this earth, I would say. This earth, not as it is exactly, but this earth refreshed, renewed, and healed. What is God's dream for what we have here? His dream is not his destruction. It was made very good. His dream is the liberation of this creation from its decay. Therefore, what does this mean for you and me? The point of all this is that if this is good, damaged, certainly, but if it's good and if God is going to heal it, then we should treat it well. We should participate in the liberation of creation from decay, not speed it up. Speed the day of the Lord's coming, yes, but not by making this place worse than it already is. If God loves it and thinks it is good and wants to heal it, then much like we're trying to heal people's relationship with God and we try and help someone become a Christian, we should be trying to heal the earth here and make it better, not worse. More like, in other words, we've got a mandate to make it more like God always planned for it to be rather than speed up its um, <clears throat> the mess that we see around us. Now, this it. This is, I'm talking in general terms here. We will talk more specifically in the next class about the humanitarian aspect of this, particularly as it pertains to the impact of our choices about what we consume and how we consume it on the most vulnerable of this world, which are often not here where you and I are in this country, often further abroad, but that our impact on the vulnerable matters to God. And secondly, we'll be talking about our stewardship mandate, which I think will flesh out what I'm talking about here uh, a little more clearly and more specifically. But just to wrap up, I believe that this earth, renewed, is our permanent home. Changed, not exactly like it is now, but it is going to be our home. And if it's our home, we should look after it, shouldn't we? Much like we hopefully look after our home, because we might have to live in it quite a long time. But what if we were going to live in it forever? How might we treat it? How could we consider how to reverse the uglification of creation. How might you and I be able to make a difference to the uglification of creation, bringing it into instead liberation? And also, when we pray that prayer in the Lord's Prayer, that part of the Lord's Prayer where we're praying, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, how, how does that affect the way that we think about using the resources of this world in terms of that part of the prayer. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Well, I think that'll do for this uh, class. I think it's a little shorter than the previous one. And I think I explained a few things more clearly than I did for the, uh, for the class last week. If you have any questions, do let me know. You can email me, you know, Malcolm at MalcolmCost.org. Uh, there is a page on my website where we've got some, called, I think, Theology and Ecology. And there's some resources up there you might want to look up. There's some books referenced there. There's some websites, uh, a couple of other talks and things. So, feel free to do that and I hope you have a good discussion about all this and send me your questions and thoughts so that that can feed into the next class that's coming up in uh, two weeks time thanks a lot take care and God bless